Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. The Athletic. Mark Chapman, welcome to the Business of Sport podcast on The Athletic. Matt Slater is with us. Coming up today, following the announcement that Roman Abramovich has been sanctioned by the British government and now the European Union, we'll discuss the likely effect on Chelsea and the wide-ranging impact such measures will have on sport in England. Later on in the pod, we'll be joined by the MP Clive Efford, who was part of a committee that yesterday questioned leading figures about the role of Russian money in football, and if the government is concerned about investments in UK sport from other nations with poor human rights records. First, here is Matt in conversation with Bill Browder, founder and CEO of Hermitage Capital Management, which was the largest foreign investor in Russia until 2005. Since 2009, when his lawyer, Sergei Magnitsky, died in prison after reporting alleged $230 million fraud committed by Russian tax officials, Browder has been leading a campaign to expose allegations of corruption and human rights abuses that will lead to visa sanctions and asset freezes on those involved. Browder also explains to Matt exactly why oligarchs like Roman Abramovich are being sanctioned. So, Bill, I'll start off with a with a with a question that I kind of you know ask nearly all our guests when when they come on. Can you explain a little bit about yourself? Because bear in mind, we this is a this is a, a football audience, predominantly a sports audience. Uh, listeners all around the world, but predominantly in the UK and the US. Explain yourself and your kind of journey and your story, particularly around Russia and Putin. Some people would describe me as Putin's number one enemy, or that's how they used to describe me. I think Vladimir Zelensky is now Putin's number one enemy, followed by a guy named Alexei Navalny, who's in jail. Um, but uh, the reason why Putin is so angry with me is that I, um, I passed a piece of legislation um, called the Magnitsky Act in 2012. When I say I passed it, I lobbied for it to be passed in the United States. And the Magnitsky Act is named after my Russian lawyer, Sergei Magnitsky, who um, uncovered a massive uh, Russian government corruption scheme. He exposed it. And in retaliation, he was arrested, tortured for 358 days and murdered um, in November of 2009. And I gave up my life as a businessman uh, to go after the people who killed him and make sure they face justice. And the, um, the Magnitsky Act freezes the assets and bans the visas of human rights violators around Russia and around the world and those who killed Sergei. And Vladimir Putin got really angry about that. Um, he got angry about it because he's a man who commits a lot of human rights abuses and he's a man with a lot of money and he's a man with a lot of money in the West. And so he knew that sooner or later, um, the Magnitsky Act was gonna come back and bite him. And, uh, and so for many years, um, I, I've now got the Magnitsky Act passed in not just the United States, but in Canada, here in the UK, in the European Union, and Australia, and various other countries. Now, 34 countries with the Magnitsky Act. And Putin has been chasing me around the world with red notices from Interpol, trying to arrest me with extradition requests from the UK, where I live, um, with death threats, with kidnapping threats, with lawsuits, with all sorts of stuff, because I've really 
you know, put, put a spanner in the works for him. And so um, uh, when I'm watching um, what's going on in Ukraine, um, the one thing I can take some, some, uh, some small satisfaction in is that I had something to do with the, the main punishment that we're putting out on these oligarchs, which is freezing their assets and banning their visas, which is the, the, the things that we're doing to the oligarchs is a direct result of the work that I've, I've been doing over the last decade. Well, it's an incredible story and you, and you tell it beautifully in your, your, your book, Red Notice. And I think you've got another book coming out soon, haven't you? Freezing Orders. Is it Freezing yeah. Order? Free, freezing yeah, Order. Yeah. Freezing Order is all about going after the Kremlin's dirty money and how they laundered it uh, in the West and how all sorts of Westerners helped them with their blood money, blood money connected to the murder of Sergei Magnitsky. And it really, it's... I don't think anyone has ever, ever sort of lifted, lift the hood on, on how these guys operate. And it's pretty unbelievable and kind of scary. And, and in a certain way, the reason, reason why we are where we are today. Let's talk about how important London is to what has happened over the last 20 years or so. The Russians came to London en masse after the fall of the Soviet Union. They came here for one simple reason, because they were safe here. No one was going to, we have rule of law, we have property rights, and there was not a single financial crime investigator in this country that was ever going to ask them a single question about their, about their money. And so they came here and, and they bought their way into polite society. Everyone was, you know, kissing their ass, really, just trying to be, you know, trying to get some access. They wanted some of that money. They wanted to be invited to their parties. They wanted to go on their yachts. They wanted to go on their private jets. And so all sorts of people that you would have think would be more dignified than that basically, you know, became concierges. And that's one of the reasons why for, you know, they, they were able to, you know, poison uh, a bunch of people in Salisbury with a banned chemical uh, nerve agent. And then like six months later, we, we were all going there for the World Cup. I mean, just shocking, um, you know, the, 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 the level of acceptance of this criminal regime here because of their money. Well, Bill, obviously we're talking right now because of what's happening in Ukraine, but you're talking to me, a football journalist, because of what's happened to Roman Abramovich. Rightly so, I imagine you're going to tell me. In that story, that story of Russians coming to London to launder reputations and money uh, because it was somewhere safe for them to park themselves, to be out of harm's way, I guess, in Russia. And How often... Did Roman Abramovich sort of come up in, in, in your investigations? I mean, how much do you know about the man? How close was he to Putin? Well, I know a lot about him, but um, uh, Roman Abramovich uh, sued my friend Catherine Belton. Catherine Belton wrote a book called Putin's People, in which she made various allegations about Roman Abramovich. And she's, she's a journalist with like not two pennies to rub together. And he brought all the force and might of his multi-billion dollar fortune to try to destroy her life in the libel courts here. And so I could tell you all sorts of things that I know about Roman Abramovich. Um, but you know what would happen is that you and I would both be sued in the libel courts for a lot of money. We'd spend the next two years of our life not doing nothing other than defending ourselves against him and all of his expensive lawyers trying to ruin our life because obviously he doesn't want people to talk about him because maybe there's things that he doesn't want people to talk about. No, sure. I completely understand that. We've, I've, I've, I've had letter as well. <laughs> <laughs> over at some point in my past. We're talking, though, the night after the BBC finally ran a panorama show that I think has been in the can for three or four years, and they made some allegations. 
not new, I mean, they said they were new. I imagine they're not new to you. Um, about how he made his money back in the mid '90s, and and subsequently, they have clearly decided that the bar, the legal bar, the legal, the threat has has somehow reduced, or maybe they're just that confident with their with their story. Did you learn anything last night in the Panorama show? Learn anything? Because I've known, I know everything. I truly know everything that I need that there is to know about this whole story, and it's not a pretty story. But but um, but, but I I actually had to laugh to myself because uh, it, it, he, Roman Abramovich was fighting with the late Boris Berezovsky in court, and they were basically fighting over what could be described as um, you know by by some people as ill-gotten gains from the Russian government. So there it was you know two Russian oligarchs fighting over so, something that probably neither of them should have owned, and. And there, and and he made all sorts of admissions in court about like uh, well, how they got it from the government, how it wasn't exactly above board. Um, you know, there were there's bribes involved, and uh, the assets were undervalued. I think they paid 270 million for an asset that a few years later was sold for 13 billion. Bought it from the government for 270 million, sold it back to the government or a government company for 13 billion. And what what I find so amusing about this, he was like. Um, dodging a bullet coming at him from Berezovsky looking left. And, and by saying that, you know, all of a sudden Panorama puts that out there and a big truck comes and hits him coming from the right. And so, uh, you know, I'll let them defend themselves in court if, if and when, and probably he will come and sue them because that's what these guys do. They just sue, sue, sue. But um, I thought it was pretty funny that, that like, uh, you know, here he is, you know, he's got a whole web of, of stuff that's like, Kind of, kind of complicating his life right now. Let's um, encourage people to to read Catherine's book, your book, to to Google be their friend, right? Do their own research. Let's let's move on to why sanctions work, why it is important to go after these guys, guys like Roman Abramovich. What what are we trying to achieve, and does it work? Well, let me speak generally, not not about Roman Abramovich, but in uh, so Vladimir Putin is a very rich man. Vladimir Putin became rich by extorting the oligarchs, um, by stealing vast amounts of money from the state, by imprisoning people who had money so they handed it over, by killing people so they could get their money, and by doing every other crime under the sun. He loves money. And by the way, um, everybody who, who serves in the Russian government doesn't do it because they want to serve their people. They do it because they want to make money. It's the biggest money making gig in Russia is to be a minister in the government. And the, and the biggest of all the money-making gigs is to be the president of Russia. So he's stolen a lot of money. But he can't legitimately sign up any of that money in his own name. He can't keep an account at a bank. He can't keep a property in his own name, because if it was held in his own name, uh, then somebody would flash around that piece of paper and say, Vladimir, you're not the patriot you claim to be. I'm going to tell everybody unless you give me this, that, or the other thing, blackmail. He knows blackmail very well, because as a KGB officer, that's how he got people to cooperate was to either bribe them or blackmail them, mostly blackmail. So he's got to keep the money in the names of people he trusts. And um, he also has to keep money in the names of people who can plausibly have that kind of money in their accounts. So he can't give it to his like, um, you know, cleaner and have that guy show up at Goldman Sachs with $2 billion because everyone was the Goldman Sachs is where you get the $2 billion. But if he gives it to a a multi-billionaire oligarch to hold for him, that's a different story. If it, so in terms of why are we sanctioning these oligarchs, the simple answer is we're sanctioning Vladimir Putin and, and we're trying to freeze his money. And we're doing a good job at it now. 
and I'm, by the way, the biggest critic of government sanctions policy you'll ever meet because I've been hammering away on these people for 10 years to try to do the right thing and to sanction the right people. But we're now getting to the right people. Um, and I'm pretty happy with the recent sanctions list. And I'm happy with the concept that there are going to be more people sanctioned. And what happens when someone gets sanctioned is that their financial life is ruined. It gets ruined. So um, the moment that a person gets put on the sanctions list, every bank has to stop doing business with them. If there's money in the bank account, that money is frozen. Um, nobody will buy from them or sell to them anything because nobody wants to be in violation of UK sanctions or US treasury sanctions or whatever. And at that point, they become effectively non-people in the world of commerce. And it's particularly complicated and, and horrendous for a person of immense wealth to be put in that position because all the money that they have effectively becomes inaccessible and useless to them. And some people say, well, but the world's a big place and they could keep their money in Dubai or, or China. Well, let me tell you, if, if, if you put all that money in Dubai, then they, they shake there will say, you know what? Are you sure this is yours, not mine? Or even worse with the Chinese. And so the reason that they, keep, that they have all their money in the West, which is where it's been frozen, is because that was the place where they, they felt safe having their money. And so um, this is really a big deal and uh, a very um, uh, detrimental thing to their lives. Well, it is a big deal and it's a very detrimental thing. And, and football fans are learning that. You know, Chelsea fans are learning that right now. The implications, the consequences of being a frozen asset. Do you have any sympathy for the position that Chelsea fans find themselves in now? Or, or Chelsea staff, or Chelsea players? Well, I mean, it, it, it wasn't the Chelsea fans who decided um, that they wanted that, that a Russian oligarch should own their team. Um, I mean, they, they, but having said that, they got a big benefit from, from uh, uh, Abramovich owning their team because he was spending money like other, other people weren't spending money on players and, and so on. And so they've had a lot of success with uh, Roman Abramovich. Now, um, you know, now, now they're facing the downside. So it's hard for me to have any joy or pity for, for, uh, for these people. I mean, this is, you know, this is a very minor issue. We're, we're worrying about, um, you know, world destruction who wins or loses in a football tournament, you know, might be the, the the most important thing in the world to some people. But as I watch 2,000 people being massacred in Mariupol, I think that that you know, success in football is kind of a kind of not not even on the radar screen. And so, you know, whatever is going to happen to Chelsea is going to happen to Chelsea. Um, and uh, you know, it's just you know, the collateral damage in a in a terrible war that Vladimir Putin started. One of the things that I think football, the industry, the club, even our government, which has acknowledged that Chelsea isn't your typical frozen asset. It's one that we care. It's not like a house in Knightsbridge or a, or a warehouse full of carpets or something. You know, it's a, it's a living, breathing cultural asset, which is why they've given it this general license so that it can carry on. Have you, in your experience, I mean, do do you do you see that it's different? Do you see that a, that a football team is different to a typical frozen asset? Well, it is, and 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 they're right to treat it differently, and and I think that Chelsea will be fine in the end. I think that um, Chelsea will be okay in the end. I mean, just to give you another example, Oleg Deripaska, who's another uh, another oligarch um, who has been sanctioned here, was sanctioned back in 2018 by the U.S. government, and. Um, all of a sudden, the, um, he, he has a big aluminum company in Russia. And all of a sudden, aluminum prices started going through the roof because people couldn't buy his aluminum from him. And, they, and that, that like reduced the supply of aluminum in the world and reduced supply, pushes up the price. And so the U.S. government very quickly understood this and took his company off of the U.S. sanctions list. And for, for the same reason, 
as the British government is giving a license to Chelsea. And so it's, it's the right thing to do when there's a lot of collateral damage that can be minimized. And so I have no um, objections to that. I think it's the right thing to do. And, and uh, um, it doesn't benefit Abramovich to do that. And, um, and it, it allows the um, people of Great Britain or Chelsea in particular to carry on watching their football and, and um, you know, living their lives as uninterrupted as, as can be. Bill, as a, as a final thought, then I'm going to ask you to sort of put your business hat back on your, your you know, your very experienced finance guy and obviously your knowledge of sanctions and how they work. How do you sell a frozen asset whilst making sure the owner of that frozen asset receives no benefit from it? It's extremely straightforward. And I've seen this in other sanction situations that I've been involved in. And and what happens is that, uh, let's say he finds a buyer for it. The buyer buys it. He sells it. The government gives permission to the buyer to buy it. And then the proceeds go into an account that becomes frozen, like any other account. And, And I should point out that freezing the assets is different than seizing the assets. At the moment, I mean, there are, there are certainly politicians suggesting seizing the assets, but there's no law to seize the assets. It's just a matter of freezing them. And the main point of freezing them is that Vladimir Putin isn't able to ask Abramovich to send that money back to him to fund his war effort, and um, which is something that, that it's very likely he would do when, he, when, when uh, all of Putin's other assets are frozen. And so uh, that's what will happen. Uh, I think that, that it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, a, it's not the easiest in scenario in which to sell a company, but there's plenty of people interested in, in Chelsea. I've even gotten a few phone calls from people I know who want to know, you know, want, want to understand the whole sanctions regime to understand if they were to get involved, what would happen to them. But I think that, that there is a, a path forward. I think that the government understands the cultural importance of, of Chelsea. And I think that the government would probably go out of its way to make sure that, that, um, that uh, if there was a, an agreed sale, that the sale would happen and then the money would be sitting on a, in a frozen account that belongs to Abramovich to be determined when the sanctions are either lifted or the expropriation happens. Or there might be some sort of agreement to pass it on to charity, which I know was one of his ideas. But just just want to pick up on one thing you said there, which I think is really interesting. You've actually received some calls, people presumably asking for your advice. You know, Bill, might I be breaching a sanction here? You know, and, I, and I've, I've, I've heard this a number of times that this might be a particularly difficult, problematic deal to do for, let's say, an American institution, a bank, for example, who would be very, very sensitive to the possibility of breaching a sanction. And so nobody is going to breach a sanction. There's no, I mean, there's no, the, the amount of money that's involved, no, no lawyer is going to advise their client to make a payment with that kind of money involved unless there's a, fu- a full and firm, explicit government sign-off. That's just, that's just how it's going to work. And so it's not like they're going to find some Chinese buyer who's going to do that because that Chinese buyer would be, anyone who doesn't consult the government in this thing would be breaching sanctions and nobody wants to do that. And so it is a complicated deal. A lot of people probably have probably political waters that a lot of people probably wouldn't want to wade into, but it's a good asset and it's a good good team. And so there'll be there will be people out there and they probably can get it at a good price now. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This is a paid advertisement from Better Health Therapy Online. Do you ever get that feeling that you need to get something off your chest? We all carry around different stresses, big and small. And when we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe place to release and discuss those thoughts and feelings and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, why not give BetterHelp a try? It's entirely online and it's designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. All you need to do is fill out a brief questionnaire to match with a licensed therapist. And if things don't click, you can switch to someone new at any time with no additional charge. With over 1,000 therapists in the UK already, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. And because you listen to this podcast, you can get 10% off your first month of online therapy by heading to betterhelp.com slash athleticfootball. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash athleticfootball with no spaces. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. On Tuesday, members of the Digital Culture, Media and Sport Committee questioned the Sports Minister, the Chief Executive of the FA and a leading executive from the Premier League on sanctions for Russian influence in sport. MP Clive Efford was part of the committee asking the questions and joins us now. This is very hard at the moment, Clive, for for a lot of of football fans and actually probably for a lot of people who, who work in football to have to deal with geopolitical issues on a daily basis. Well, yes, it is. I mean, it is difficult. And football, I think, in some respects, has has put itself in a difficult position. I think even if we had the requirements that are put in place by the the fan-led review, I don't think that that would prevent either the the, the Saudis or or, or Roman Abramovich from being a director or owner. Uh, So if we're going to go down this road, the government has got to look at it and see if there is a way that they can uh, create a, 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 a level which would strengthen the Premier League and the FA and the, and the English Football League's hand. It's very hard, though, isn't it? You know, I mean, everybody seems to agree, actually. Government and Premier League together recognise that the owners and directors test needs to be more robust. But as you've already highlighted, if the government is doing business with, with certain the country is doing business with certain regimes. Should football be an outlier? Should football take the the moral lead? Or should football fall in line with what is allowed for businesses in this country? Football is a business at the end of the day, particularly in the Premier League. I mean, they're they're, they're huge businesses. I mean, look at the value of Chelsea at the moment. They are huge international businesses with shareholders and all the rest of it. So in a sense, if, if we're going to set this moral bar, it's got to be set for business. 
So I think government's got to take a long, hard look at this. If, if we want to prevent money being laundered, money that has come from questionable sources being used uh, to sponsor culture, to sponsor sport, to sponsor uh, or, or to invest in business here, I, I think we've got to have a good, hard look at the checks and balances. Clive, you were, um, you were on a um, select committee yesterday, digital media, cultural sport. That I'm, I'm sure you remember. I was watching. <laughs> Get alive, uh, really. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> I, was, I was paid to do it, Clive. <laughs> um, and and you know your you it was an evidence gathering session. It was there was there was all sorts of stuff. There's disinformation in Russia. I thought that was quite interesting. But then you had a bit of bit of football governance, and um, I suppose your, your star witnesses were um, Mark Bullingham, chief executive of the FA, and Helen McNamara, who's uh, head of policy and corporate affairs at the Premier League. And and you you quizzed both of them, particularly Helen McNamara. I thought you know, quite quite heavily on this Danhead review, which we've had Tracy Crouch on on the pod in the past. She talked us through her plans. For listeners that can't remember, this was the sort of government promise to have a good root and branch look at football's governance off the back of things like the Super League and uh, Project Restart and Berry and Macclesfield, all those things. And I guess the sort of, if we're going to sort of crunch it all into one big idea, it was football needs a bit more independent regulation. It, it, it needs a genuine ombudsman, whatever you want to call it, to sort of take some of these really, really horrible, tough, complicated issues away from the clubs that have conflicts of interest in the FA, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now, you asked a number of questions about that. And what, without sort of, you know, stealing your thunder, what, what did you make of the answers you got? I mean, what we were teasing out is where, where, where they are in terms of uh, uh, our approach to um, the, uh, the fan-led review. Fan-led review is quite clear, an independent regulator of English football. Uh, that is independent of the FA and, and the Premier League and the EFL. And, and what we were trying to tease out of them was, you know, what are they actually saying to government? What are they lobbying for? Are they saying we accept the recommendations or are they lobbying for sort of, uh, you know, a role for the FA that waters down the, the independent regulator? Are they um, in favour of the independent regulator as, as set out in the, in the fan-led review or are they looking at something else. I feel sorry for the FA in some respects because it's a grand old uh, institution and, and a great historic institution in football globally. But it is a bit of a, an, a, a you know, a, 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 gestid, a you know, gestidial organ, clearly is, you know, buffeted by the Premier League. Um, so you can see the interest of the Premier League in wanting to have a structure where the FA has more say. And I think that, uh, you know, the time has come for an independent regulator with the power to enforce and intervene uh, i think that's where football needs to go and i think the, the the last few weeks has probably you know sort of shone a big light on the on the, that fact but to tie in with your earlier points to mark how does that independent regulator get us out of the problem with chelsea abramovich with chelsea and roman abramovich it doesn't in my opinion that's why the the, the questions that we were asking or i was certainly asking yesterday well and the chair the chair opened up with that because if we are going to set that bar about uh, i mean let's face it this is about dirty money coming into uh uk sport and in particular this one being the football in the premier league but but there is a much wider debate going on in parliament you know i'm in discussions with, with colleagues across party you know, Conservatives involved and other people on other parties as well in exposing what is going on about London being the you know the laundromat for dirty money on on, on the planet. And we we 
need to make sure that we can we, we deal with that. And part of that will have to be setting standards for checking where people's wealth has come from. Uh, so the, you know, the unexplained wealth orders to ensure that we, we try to clean up uh, our acts across the board, not just in football, uh, as much as we possibly can. And there is a piece of legislation that the government is saying it's bringing forwards, Economic Crimes Act Mark II, um, which I think we're all hoping we will be able to see some movement on that. Uh, moving it to, to Chelsea specifically during yesterday's committee hearing, did you did you get a sense at all of fearing for the future for Chelsea? I mean, I hope that Chelsea, um, there, there's a device found, a license or whatever it is, so that Chelsea can start to do business again, but it can't. But obviously, it's got to be separated off from Roman Abramovich because he is sanctioned. And so, yes, I do fear that Chelsea will be um, adversely affected by this situation. I think the government should do all it can to assist them. And therefore, do you have a lot of sympathy for Chelsea fans who, you know, yesterday we had the, 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 the wholly bizarre thing of Chelsea asking for the, the game at Middlesbrough to be played behind closed doors because their fans couldn't go in the interest of sporting integrity and they, they withdrew that. But... For the Chelsea fans, you can't buy away tickets for the FA Cup, for example, because of this license, which doesn't allow Chelsea to sell. Do you ha- do you have sympathy for Chelsea fans? Because we football fans, all of us, we cannot choose who our owners are. We have no that well, very few of us have any say at any club in the ninety-two who our owners are. Yes, uh, we don't get that choice, and 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 you know we uh, so, so and and football clubs. You know, this is the point we've been making about the special uh, position that football clubs have in their communities and in the economy in that sense, because we've said that they're businesses, but they're not pure businesses. You know, you you have a Sainsbury's in the middle of your community. People don't feel passionately about their Sainsbury's like they do about their football club. Um, and uh, so um, there is a difference. They are part of the community. Um, I mean, I think even more so now because of the football trust. And I know the football trusts are not necessarily part of the club itself, but they're a separate charity. But they bear the brand and they're closely associated. Uh, and, uh, and, and football trusts are doing tremendous stuff. That's why I think there is a special case for you know treating Chelsea not just as a business that's owned by Abramovich, but as the football club that it is and the historic club and the part of the community that it is. All right, I was just going to, you know, just picking up on your points around um, the work you're doing with with colleagues across the house on on London and its reputation, its, its special place in sort of the financial world. Do you think that is a debate that British sport, and I really kind of mean football, don't I, should be having as well about where it gets its investment from, the kind of people it does business with? How that the Premier League could regulate on its become its own regulator that sets a standard beyond the governments i don't know how it would stand in that in that in those circumstances uh, they tried to suggest to us yesterday that they could do that but i doubt they could because it all comes down to uh, you know uh, you know corporate law and finance and the lawyers get involved and believe me these oligarchs pay some big lawyers i mean even uh, you know just to shut people up they use these slap orders to uh, to just bombard people with constant requests for information just to wear people down without even getting to court. I, I think the Premier League would be very uh, uh, reluctant to go down that road independently. Um, so I do think this is a big matter for government and there is 
growing concern in Parliament, and I know it's growing because, you know, it's something that I've come to, uh, well, others have been arguing for it for some time before me, and it is a growing voice in Parliament that we've got to deal with this situation, and it, it is actually damaging the reputation of Great Britain across the globe being seen as this sort of laundromat for dirty money. How much did you buy into Helen McNamara's argument yesterday that the huge global reach of the Premier League uh, is a, a very good way to share our values with the rest of the world, Clive? There is a bit of that, I think, there can be. The lead they're taking on taking the knee, you know, there's an example that she used. I think that that's to be applauded. Uh, but I wouldn't set us up as something, you know, of a higher moral standard than the people we play. I think, you know, there's there's a lot of the Corinthian spirit in football and sport in general that comes from across the globe. Uh, and I think it's more about football and sport and where people come together rather than one nation's values are slightly better than another. But I think we can, uh, you know, at times uh, show, show a lead as a, you know, a developed democracy in the, in the world. I suppose what it boils down to is whether you believe taking the knee and rainbow laces has an effect on an audience in China or whether a TV deal with China is just about getting the money. I think the importance about it is, it, it, you know, it's not going to change everything like a flicking on of a switch, but it does actually start people to think, well, what's going on there? Why are they doing that? And 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 the subject gets uh, considered. This is in relation to, to Mark Bullingham and, and the FA and, and England, really, because, because as we established right at the start, everything is tied in. Here, you know, Roman Abramovich's situation at Chelsea with allied with the Russian invasion has shone a light, an even a bigger light on on, as we say, the geopolitical side of football. Four years ago, the Russia World Cup was one of my favourite World Cups I've ever covered. I and I, I we did spend a lot of time. I'll be honest, Clive, discussing whilst I was doing it what we were seeing, whether it was real, whether we were being shown a. a a side of Russia that they wanted us to see whilst we were there. But it was a very successful and enjoyable World Cup, I think, for a lot of the people that covered it, a lot of the journalists that covered it. I've spent a lot of time thinking about that World Cup over over recent weeks and some of the people that we met. Should we go to Qatar? Right, I was shadow sports minister when we won the when Qatar won the bid and uh, was highly critical of it at the time. Uh, and I still am, I'm afraid. Well, I've got a problem here because I think football's in a bad place at the moment and some, some in, on the sort of moral side of issues. You know, we, we've been discussing that. Roll forwards to December when we're in, uh, in Qatar. You know, the, one of the issues that I was raising uh, at the time was the issue of human rights, particularly the Qatar um, uh, arrangements for uh, migrant workers who are building those stadiums. And I have a big problem. Uh, with uh, all the multimillionaires and oligarchs and all the rest that are all going to turn up in those stadiums uh, for the World Cup and these millionaire footballers who are going to go out on the pitch and maybe England players will take the knee in those stadiums and they've been built by people who've been living and working in the most appalling conditions and many of whom have died. I think that's a bad day for football, to be quite frank. That's my view and it still remains my view. It was my view from day one and I haven't changed. The sheer confusion and conflict that is in most people in football's heads at the moment about how on earth we do the right thing from day to from day to day, Clive. <laughs> you know exactly. If I was a sports minister, would I be stepping in and saying England cannot go to Qatar? No, I would not. I don't think that politicians really, unless the extreme circumstances where Russia has done exactly what it's done 
that, that politicians should interfere in the day-to-day management of sport at all. Um, sports let best left alone. And I wouldn't deny this generation of wonderful footballers that we've got at uh, the, the elite level in uh, in England, the opportunity to compete against the best in the, you know, when the best all uh, gather to play the World Cup. Politicians shouldn't make grandstanding uh, posi- uh, policy positions on the back of athletes who are at the peak of their game who want to pe- compete at the top when they're at, uh, when they're at their peak and deny that generation that opportunity unless there's extreme circumstances. Clive, thank you very much for coming on. Uh, appreciate it on what is a very, what is a very uh, difficult discussion. Thank you. Indeed. Thanks, Clive. I enjoyed it. Thank you. Right, that's it. You can subscribe to The Athletic for just £1 a month for the first six months. Just go to theathletic.com slash football pod. Thanks for listening. The Athletic.